Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to All the Books a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 308, and today we are talking about books being released on April 27th, 2021, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Patricia Elsie Tuttle, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Patricia, hello! Hey, Liberty! How's it going? It's going all right. I feel like I was having a bit of a hard time focusing on reading the past few months, but I feel like I've gotten back into the swing of things and it feels real good. I was going to ask you if it was the nicer weather, but you're in California, so it's kind of just always nice there, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's often nice. Like we've had a few cloudy days and um, tomorrow, tomorrow from when we're recording this, it's supposed to rain, so I have mm. my fingers crossed because we're prob- we're probably in a drought already. Oh, dear. Yeah. And all that staying inside, I was thinking about this the other day, like, all the electricity that we're using staying inside and all the water and, and everything, it must have increased dramatically, like, all over the place. Yeah, and we didn't really get a lot of rain this year, so it's not that we're not used to drought here in California, but it's still a bummer. Yeah. Did you feel the earthquake? Was that in your area a couple weeks ago? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> well, then there you go. I was, well, I guess, no, because Los Angeles isn't really close to where you no, are. No, Los Angeles is not close to me. <laughs> I just, you know, I don't know much geography. So I'm like, California, everybody's in the same spot. It's like when I was little and I would see a license plate from Maine and I assumed I knew that person because I live in Maine, you know. <laughs> um, I was actually, I had a conference call with some people in Los Angeles a couple weeks ago, it was like right after it happened. They were like, that was weird. I was like, what's weird? They're like, mm, earthquake. I'm like, oh, you seem so calm. <laughs> like, yeah, it happens all the time. <laughs> no, I used to live in LA. Oh, there you go. So you know I, what I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> yeah. I think we felt one here once, like when I used to live in, in New Hampshire several years ago. I lived in this very precarious little wooden structure that really should have been condemned. And I lived in the attic and there was an earthquake like 10 miles away. And like all the books in my apartment <laughs> fell down because the building just swayed like when people walked by it. So oh, wow. <laughs> it was like, nothing. I'm like, what is happening? That was interesting. I used to work in a building. I worked on a college campus and... There was like the seismology students or whatever would put these giant machines on the top of the building and shake the building because they were studying how earthquakes would affect the building. And this building was on rollers. It was it was about six stories high, I think, six to eight. And so we would just get an email like, hey, the seismic students are going to be shaking the building today. Like, while we're working and everything. That is wild. I have never heard of such a thing. 
I had no idea they did that. Just, I mean, of course it makes sense. Like they, but I just assumed, you know, they studied buildings like after these things happened. Like here's what happened when an earthquake occurred. I never thought about them doing it on purpose. That's wild. Yeah, yeah it was <gasps> weird. But like, if you didn't read your email, <laughs> then wow. it was it was a bit of a surprise. <laughs> Speaking of natural disasters, you could probably hear my cat. He's at the door. He's like, I want to come in and talk about things with you. But he's a liar. He just wants to come in and knock everything down. He's like, hey, I read books. And you're like, no, yeah. you don't. Yeah, he lies. He can't even turn the pages. He doesn't have opposable thumbs. He's a liar. Um, we are going to talk about books, though. And today I get to talk about a book that I've been waiting over a year to talk about. So Ooh. I might start talking so high you won't be able to know what I'm saying because I'm so excited about this book. But before I kick it off with that book, we are going to hear from a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Taming Seven is an epic and unforgettable love story in the international best-selling and TikTok phenomenon, The Boys of Tom and Series, from Chloe Walsh. So Tommen's cheekiest lad, Jared Gibsey Gibson, has always been a comedian, but inside he is haunted by events of the past and he uses humor to cope, hiding his true self from the world. Then you have Claire Biggs, who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibsy, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice, and she becomes determined to tame her wild-at-heart childhood best friend. So The Boys of Tom and Series is an internationally best-selling YA romance series that has taken TikTok by storm. It's perfect for readers looking for new adult slash crossover romance, dual point of views, friends to lovers, marathon worthy TikTok books, and angsty tearjerkers. Taming Seven is published today and it's the fifth book in the series. So make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, I hope everyone is ready because I might just talk about this book for like the whole 30 minutes. I don't know. <laughs> it's so good. I love it so much. It is called Meet Me in Another Life by Katrina Sylvie. Like I said, I have been waiting a year to be able to talk about this with other people because now everyone can buy it and they can read it. It's so good. If you are looking to recapture the feelings that you got reading The Time Traveler's Wife or The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, this is the book that you want to pick up. It's magical and lush and sad and wonderful. It's a story about reincarnation. 
the two main characters are Thora and Santi. And at the beginning of the book, when it opens, they are students in Cologne, Germany. And they meet this one night at a party, and they have this great conversation. But shortly after they meet, there is a tragic accident. Now, it doesn't say what that is in the description of the book, so I'm not going to tell you. But since this is a book about reincarnation and people living their lives over and over, you could probably guess what happens. So after this chapter, Thora and Santi meet again in another life in Cologne, Germany, and then again and again and again. And each time they meet, they are different things to each other. They're father and daughter, husband and wife, co-workers, student and teacher, doctor and patient. It goes on and on. And they also, it's always in Cologne, Germany, and they always have the same people in their lives, usually in very similar roles to the ones they play in each of their lives. Uh, for the most part, Santi is married to the same woman. Uh, Thora is bisexual, and her partner is almost always a woman, except when she and Santi are paired up, and there are other people that they know that always appear in their stories. And so we, as readers, experience their multiple lives. And, like, we're reading this, and you're, like, wondering, like, why is this happening? You know, why do they keep, you know, appearing in Cologne, Germany? And then about a third of the way in, something happens that I can't tell you, but it will ensure that you will call out sick from work, you will, you know, tell your family to feed themselves, you will do whatever you have to do just to keep reading this book, because it is like, whew, like, this thing happened, and I was like, Grover, I was like, what? I just couldn't believe it, and I just kept reading even faster, like, it was just so good. And they keep having more lives after this event, but now they're starting to remember each other. They're starting to remember, like, little pieces of their past lives. And as the story goes on, they remember more. But, like, why is this happening to them? Why are they stuck in this time loop? Why do they keep being reincarnated in Cologne, Germany? And will this ever end? That's all I can say about the plot, basically. Uh, except to say that the ending brought me to my knees. I mean, Sylvie just, she really got me. I was like, ah, the ending of this book is so good. And then you will want to go back and read it again immediately, and you will see all the things that you didn't realize were important the first time around. It's one of those books. And I love those kind of books. You're like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. I had no idea that had any meaning. So, so good. I love this book so much. I also wanted to say that the author's first name is spelled C-A-T-R-I-O-N-A. And it's pronounced Katrina. I pronounced it incorrectly when I mentioned it on the show before when I think I was talking about, like, books I was excited about. And I did actually look it up on the internet. So I want to just, you know, point out that, oh, my goodness, the internet was wrong once because they were like, it's Catriona, which is how I pronounce it. It's not at all. It's pronounced Katrina. And did I mention how much I love this book? Oh, my goodness. Uh, so this is a story about people dying repeatedly. So, you know, there are a lot of content warnings including illness, death, car accidents, drowning, fire, physical violence, murder, chemical use, and animal death, sort of. You have to read the book to understand what I mean by sort of. But it's so, so good. It is called Meet Me in Another Life, and it's by Katrina Sylvie. That sounds amazing. Oh my gosh. I love this book so much. So much. I'm going to have to put it on my end of year when I have that little bit of a vacation. <laughs> to read oh so good so for my first pick 
I have Dial A for Aunties by Jesse Q. Sutanto, which I also talked about in our end of year show where I was like, these are the books I'm looking forward to in 2021. And this book was definitely on my list. So Madeline Chan believes her Chinese Indonesian family is cursed. The curse is that all the men in the family leave either by choice or by dying, and the curse has been in the back of her mind all her life. Medellin, or Medi for short, lives in Southern California with her mother and three aunts, all of whom have very strong personalities. So strong that Medi's male cousins all went as far away to college as possible. Medi, who is always very accommodating to her elders, has stayed near her mother and aunties who control many of her decisions both directly and indirectly. In fact, Medi has found herself as the photographer in the family wedding business. And I say family, but it's just Medi, her mom and her aunts. Her cousins aren't involved at all. Medi's mom and aunties are so overbearing that she even had a boyfriend in college that she didn't tell them about. They ended up breaking up, like, the breakup was five years earlier, and most of the book is five years later. She thinks about him, but hasn't spoken to him in years, and their time together is told via a few flashbacks. In the present, Medi's mom has made a dating profile on a dating website using Medi's real picture and real name in efforts to find a partner for Medi. Medi doesn't know that her mom's been doing this at all until her mom's like, yo, I got you a date. He's rich. He owns the fancy hotel that we are working at tomorrow for that giant expensive wedding. Medi is horrified, but she never draws boundaries with her family, especially her mom. So she acquiesces and goes on the blind date. The guy totally doesn't know that he had been chatting with Medi's mom online this whole time and basically being catfished. Medi didn't even get a picture of the guy, and she also didn't see the chat conversation before going on this date. She just kind of went on it and was way too trusting. So, Medi is on a date with this guy the night before she has to be up super early to take photos at a bananas expensive wedding at a hotel on a private island off the coast of Southern California. Things at this date do not go as planned, and Medi accidentally kills the guy, and I'm not spoiling anything for you by saying this. She panics, shoves him in the car trunk, and basically calls on her mom and aunties, and it's up to them to take care of Medi's mess. This book is part romance, part weekend at Bernie's, part lots of people being underhanded and behaving badly, and all comedy. It also miraculously tends to be a touching story about family and the relationships that matter. It's Dial A for Aunties by Jesse Q. Sutanto, and I absolutely loved it. I'm so glad that you loved it because I know you were excited to read it. You mentioned it on the show. We were talking about books that we were anticipating this year, which is now more than three months over already. I cannot believe we're this far into the year. (laughs) It's wild. I know. So my next pick today is White Magic by Alyssa Washuta. 
It is an incredibly powerful collection of linked personal essays. If you like memoir, even though they're called essays, you would want to read this. If you like essays if and don't usually read memoirs, you still want to read this because the whole thing is just a powerful experience. Uh, Washuda discusses painful experiences in her life, but also talks a lot about the reality of life and beauty and the magic she finds in the world. She tackles so many topics, colonization, sexual assault, alcoholism, cultural appropriation, mental illness. She talks about how when she was young, she was misdiagnosed with, well, she's still young. I mean, I think, I think she's only like maybe 30. I can't, I can't remember. But like when she was much younger, she was misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder and how the medications that she took, you know, affected her life at that time and how she finally met a doctor who was like, this is not what is right for you at all. But uh, she went through a severe period of drinking and depression. She is a Native woman. Her, her family comes from Washington, but she did grow up in New Jersey most of her life. And she talks about how that felt, you know, being away from her ancestors. And she talks about her body, how people have addressed her body and treated her body throughout her life, as well as how she has treated it and how... Inside her body, you know, things have happened. She's been ill and how um, she had problems caused by her drinking and, you know, getting a correct diagnosis of that, what that was like. She wanted to be a witch from a young age. She wanted some spirituality in her life. Uh, and she talks about what it means as a Native woman, you know, looking into witchcraft and seeing all these like starter witch kits and these appropriated rituals and products being pitched and sold by white women on Instagram and on the internet. And how she finally took her spirituality into her own hands and learned about it for herself. And how she feels close but also distant to her ancestors. She also mentions a lot of pop culture, uh, a lot of stuff that has important meaning in her life. And the writing is just amazing. Like in each essay, she weaves in and out of different topics and what she's discussing, but not in a way that makes you lose the thread but in it's so hard to describe how amazing it is and how like she just makes it seem effortless you know there's this dare movie that she watched when she was young about the dangers of drunk driving that they showed showed them in school and she was trying to find out what it was and like find it on the internet because she wanted to look something up and she keeps trying to like remember things about it so she can find this movie and she keeps going back to this movie but like you don't even realize like she's moved away from that until she comes back to it and it's just such a neat, I don't want to call it a trick, but like her style of writing is so like fluid. It just flows no matter like what she's talking about. And she mentions all kinds of different things in each essay, you know, and like all these pieces, but they just are so seamless. It's amazing. It's sad and it's beautiful and it is hard to read in places. She's so candid and she's so smart. It's one of the most incredible memoirs I've ever read. I do want to give content warnings, you know, for some of the stuff that I mentioned earlier. Um, there is discussions of illness, death, murder, assault, sexual assault, partner abuse, chemical abuse, racism, and cultural appropriation. It is called White Magic, and it is by Alyssa Washuda. For my next pick, I have something completely different. <laughs> it is Let's Talk About It, The Teen's Guide to Sex, Relationships, and Being a Human by Erica Moen and Matthew Nolan. This book actually came out in March. It is not perfect, and uh, TBH, I take umbrage with some of it. However, I recognize because of my experience that I am super critical of sex ed books. 
That being said, there's enough good stuff in this book that I obviously want to share it with you in today's show. This is a large hardcover comic book. It is a comic where teens give sex ed to other teens in conversations and the readers get to listen in. It does seem to make an assumption of some kind of baseline knowledge about human sexuality, so I don't know if I'd recommend it to someone who is starting with zero knowledge at all. Each chapter, and there are quite a few, is set up like a question with a bunch of follow-up questions. For example, one chapter is, what is a relationship? It aims to answer questions like dating, what exactly is involved? How do you get from flirting to dating? What kinds of relationships are there? The artwork allows us to see all kinds of body shapes and genders and races of characters. There's also some disabled representation as well, and I really appreciate that. Often for disabled rep in sex ed, you have to seek it out specifically, and I like that a general sex education book has characters using mobility aids. That being said, content warning for occasional ableist words, like calling something crazy or stupid. There is artwork of genitals and naked bodies of people of a range of genders, so know that. The authors were pretty careful and deliberate in not using gendered language when discussing body parts, and I appreciate that as well. This book has chapters on some things that I don't often see in sex ed books, especially for young adults, which I think should totally be discussed, like sexting and aftercare and jealousy. I think one of the best parts of this book is in one of the final chapters about rejection. There's a great recipe for how to apologize, which includes the crucial parts of a sincere apology, like behavioral change and admitting responsibility. The thing I really appreciated, though, were two separate pages of questions. The first set is questions to ask yourself to start to figure out if you're in an abusive situation. But then something I rarely see is the second list of questions to figure out if you are being abusive. Introspection is a son of a gun, and a lot of people could learn to cultivate it, especially as teenagers. This book is best used as a conversation starter. It is by no means comprehensive and can give readers a bunch of things to think about and consider. It's Let's Talk About It, The Teen's Guide to Sex, Relationships, and Being a Human by Erica Moen and Matthew Nolan. All right. It is really warm in here. (laughs) Oh, no. I was like, what are we doing? We're having a discussion, but what's happening? It's that time of year when my office gets so hot, I start to melt as we do the (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Okay. My next two books are books that have already come out. I did read some books today that didn't quite do it for me, to, so I'm just going to talk about these uh, because I loved them. The first one is Don't Call It a Cult, The Shocking Story of Keith Raniere and the Women of Nexium by Sarah Berman. This one just came out a week ago, and uh, there is going to be a discussion of occult and manipulative and abusive behavior throughout my discussion here, so I just want to give you a heads up for that. You might recognize the name of Nexium. From The Vow, which was a documentary series on HBO last year about uh, Keith Raniere and Nexium, or maybe you know his name from the papers. Nexium is actually spelled N-X-I-V-M, but they pronounce it Nexium. And this, I honestly, I passed over reading the galley of this because I was like, well, I already watched the documentary, so 
you know, what else am I going to learn? But it turns out a whole bunch. And actually, Rebecca was the one who said that she uh, read this after she watched the documentary. And and it was so incisive. And there was so much more to know uh, and answered a lot of questions. So I was like, well, obviously, I need to read it now. So and Sarah Berman works for the site Vice and specializes in these kind of stories involving cults. So this is, if you like cult stories, you know, or shocking true crime that doesn't involve murder, definitely want to pick this up, or even if you've watched the documentary. But it's about Keith Raniere, who was a genius by all accounts. Some say his IQ was as high as 256. He was actually in the Guinness Book of World Records for a couple of years as having like the highest IQ, but then there was some questions about the testing being done, and so they removed him from that entry. But from all accounts, he was definitely a braggart and also very smart from a young age. Uh, and from a young age, he began preying on vulnerable young women. Uh, and when he was in college, by, or by the time he graduated college, he had a few women who were living with him and doing everything for him uh, and, and supporting him. But now, this was unknown at the time to pretty much everyone. We didn't know about Nexium. It wasn't a thing at that time. Uh, he was just this guy. And he founded this organization. And by all accounts, it was just this place you would go if you wanted to get your life on track. Like, he was going to coach you. He was going to be a life coach. And he had some people working under him who were, who were trained to be life coaches. And they were going to help you, you know, achieve your goals. They started out in Albany, New York. I think there were like 17,000 members uh, over the next 20 years, and you would pay a lot of money and put in a lot of time, and they would tell you how to get your life on track. They would tell you how to achieve your goals. They would point out your faults. Like very often it was like pointing out like your faults and how you can fix them, and everybody was really open with each other. And But also Keith Raniere had less and less to really do with the, the teaching and he more of just became like the the head figure that everybody, you know, wanted to meet and wanted to talk to. And he lived in this house with several women. And in the meantime, the Nexium kept growing. They opened locations all over the world and famous actors joined up. And it was like, by all accounts, going really well. I keep saying by all accounts, I think, today. And but then in 2018, one of the higher up members who had actually opened her own location. Uh, who was an actress, um, she spilled the truth about what was going on. Uh, it turns out that the Nexium had a secret organization within the cult. Well, I must, they weren't calling it a cult then, but they had a secret organization within Nexium uh, called DOS, and it was this place for women, and you were you gained access by giving them something of yourself that they could use to blackmail you with if you ever spoke about the organization. And then you were branded with what was you were told was a mountain scene, but it turned out to be the initials of Keith Raniere and another woman in the group. Uh, and you had to sign this contract where you agreed to do everything that your benefactor told you, like the person who got you into this group. And that's bad stuff. And Catherine Oxenberg, a very famous actress, uh, her daughter India was involved in this. And they alerted her to this, and they started this investigation into it, and they kept trying to get the FBI to get involved. And eventually, the FBI was like, okay, yes, this is, this is wild. What is happening here? Uh, and the whole thing fell apart. Keith Raniere was arrested. He was charged with all kinds of things, racketeering, sexual assault, child pornography charges. It was just all this stuff. But it's so interesting just reading about how he used 
manipulation and fear and blackmail to keep people in line and also lawsuits. There were a few members who had left before this woman told her story to the press and he sued them basically into the ground. Like he had the money. Like one of the heirs to the Seagram's fortune was a member of Nexium and she bankrolled all of his lawsuits and he just kept suing people, you know, until they were bankrupt. One woman actually was arrested because of charges that he brought against her and she spent some time in jail. I mean, it was just all these dirty dealings. It was horrible. And like I said, he has since been arrested and charged and I believe the trial has ended but it's fascinating. It's so fascinating. And it, and I felt the same way that I kind of felt when I watched the documentary in that, you know, we, we quickly judge people who get involved in things that are labeled as cults. But you see these people in these videos and they're saying to them, we can help you feel better about yourself. We can help you, you know, get your life on track. And like, who doesn't, who doesn't want that? You know, like we have to, you know, look at both sides of, of these people who are involved in this. Not him. He's a bad person. I'm not talking about the bad people. I'm talking about like, you know, like we're quick to judge the people that are involved in this. And, you know, some people just need this in their life. They want to feel better. They want to feel like they belong, you know, and I have a lot of sympathy for those people. And like I said, I learned so much more from this book than I did from the documentary and including like a lot of questions that I had when I was watching. I do want to give content warnings for emotional manipulation, disordered eating, sexual assault, torture, kidnapping, trauma, blackmail, chemical use, and gaslighting. It is... Don't Call It a Cult, The Shocking Story of Keith Raniere and the Women of Nexium by Sarah Berman. And now, that brings us to our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. 
Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Anais Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. Okay, Patricia, what do you have for us next? For my next book, I have Goodbye Again, Essays, Reflections, and Illustrations by Johnny Sun. This book actually came out last week, but I wanted to recommend it, so here I am. This book is mostly essays with a few illustrations. It's not a comic book, so if you're not into comic books, no worries. There are dozens and dozens of essays in this book. Some are a few pages. Some are just one page or maybe even just a couple sentences. They're almost all a mix of sad, nostalgic, and hopeful. Quite a few are about the author's battles with anxiety and the constant need to be productive. And that thing that many of us do where we tie our productivity to our usefulness and our self-worth. And I found it to be like a really great read, especially right now while we're, sh- while we're still in the pandemic and people are like, oh, you need to be productive with your time. Like, oh, you didn't write a book while we we're all in shelter in place. And so I think I think it's a really good read for right now, especially. Some of the essays I loved most in this book revolve around plants. Plants that the author has either had in adulthood or growing up or plants that are in his parents' house. Of course, the essays aren't just about plants, but also metaphors on how we as people relate to each other and interact with the world around us. More than once, he talks about the particular sadness of moving out of an apartment or your parents' home or a city and returning as a visitor. The author has learned to identify certain plants and finds comfort in spotting that species of plant in a place he is visiting, kind of like seeing a familiar face. I know I do that when I go to a new bookstore. I spot a book written by someone I know or one of my past writing professors or even just a book I love in the store, and there's a weird comfort about it like I'm among friends. I especially enjoy the essays that feature the author's parents, how they become regulars at local Chinese-owned restaurants to support their community. I love the feeling of being a regular at a place. Restaurant, comic shop, you name it. Before the pandemic, there was a place where I would get the same breakfast sandwich order at least twice a week, so the owner made a button with my name on it on like the iPad cash register, and honestly, that's like one of the top 10 things in my life that has ever happened to me. Like I would just walk in and he would just press like the Patricia button for my sandwich, and it was amazing. There are also a number of essays in this book about friendships and what defines a friendship, and can you call someone a friend if you only talk a couple times a year? This was a very thoughtful, heartfelt book, and I enjoyed it. It's Goodbye Again, Essays, Reflections, and Illustrations by Johnny Sun. So good. So good. Yeah, I really like that. Um, so my last pick for today is a book that I actually mentioned two weeks ago when it came out. It is Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty by Patrick Radden Keefe. Uh, there were no galleys available for this, so I wasn't able to read it in time, but I did mention it because I thought a lot of people would want to know about it. And now I have read it, and I want to tell you a little bit about it today. 
But also, I want to tell you about virtual events. So first, I'm going to talk about bookstore events. Then I'm going to discuss the book, which includes a lot of talk of the American opioid epidemic and drug addiction and use. So I just want to give you a heads up for that before we transition. So I want to mention virtual events because they are one of the greatest things that I have discovered over the last year. You know, a lot of bookstores are closed. You can't go to events anymore. And now I can watch a virtual event anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. And the people that are talking don't have to be together. And it's an amazing, amazing thing. I have quite a a schedule of virtual events going on and have been going on. I watch one, sometimes two a day now, which is a lot. I admit that is a lot. But I'm just so happy about them all the time. Like you go to a Zoom or a Crowdcast and you can watch two authors. I watched Kelly Link and Kevin Brockmeyer, two of my very favorite authors, who are like thousands of miles away, have a discussion. And I want to mention this to you because, one, I think it's important that people attend these virtual events. Like, for me, I know, like, I want to go to a lot of events and sometimes I get to the end of the day and I'm like, oh, I'm not going to make it. And in order for publishers to send authors out, they need butts in those seats. And so when events don't do well you know, they're less likely to send authors out again. And so bookstores really need people to go to events. Like it's really, even if you haven't read the book, just like go to the event. It's really important. But also it's the same thing for virtual events because the publishers can see the number of people that have signed into those events. And that helps them decide like how popular something is, like how many more of these are going to have the author do. And it's so much easier than having to like go out of your house or take a subway somewhere. And it also supports the bookstore. You can find events just by going to, you know, an indie bookstore's website and seeing if they're having any. Some of them are paid. Some of them are free. Some of them they ask for a donation. They're all different. But there are so many incredible events. And I just wanted to mention this because I watched Patrick Radden Keefe be interviewed uh, last week. And another important point is that that very morning that he had his event, he was... Uh, he tested positive for the coronavirus. He felt fine, but we could still have the event, like virtual event. It was amazing. Um, and so I just want to like mention to you again, like how important it is that people go to virtual events, you know, watch virtual events. And, and if you don't know about them, like how great they are, you know, people, I find e- people feel even more comfortable. I think it's because they're in their own homes, but they seem to feel even more comfortable, like being silly and telling jokes and telling silly stories, like when they're on these like Zoom events. You know, I am definitely going to go back to events in person when I can because you get to meet all kinds of book people in the audience, but I highly highly recommend that you check out virtual events, you know, at your local bookstore or any bookstore around the country because like I said, you can see them anywhere. So, that's my my plug for that today. I want to give a plus 1 for events. I like I've mentioned before that I have a day job. And so I am in Zoom meetings for multiple hours most days of the week. And so at first I was avoiding virtual events because that is a lot of video time. Yeah. But then I have gone to a couple of events and they were amazing. And they are the opposite of the draining Zoom meetings. That's what I was worried about. I'm like, oh, I'm going to be drained. 
Like, they are restorative. I went to a virtual convention. I went to author talks via libraries and bookstores. And like, if you're avoiding events because you're like, oh, I'm in Zoom meetings all day at work, like, they are not draining. They are like, they give me so much energy afterward. And they're just amazing. So plus one. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point because First of all, you don't have to turn your camera on. You are not required exactly. to participate. I mean, you can ask questions, you can chat in the chat box, but like you don't have to turn your camera on. So you don't have to, you know, you can sit in your PJs if you want. I mean, they're just so great. So I'm going to start talking about Patrick's book now because it is incredible. Uh, he writes this book about the Sackler family. The Sacklers are basically responsible for America's opioid crisis. There were three brothers at the start of the 20th century, Arthur, Raymond, and Mortimer Sackler. They were the children of immigrants. Their father was a successful grocery store owner, so successful that he started buying up real estate. And during the Depression, they actually stayed afloat because he owned so much real estate and his grocery store was doing really well. And Arthur went to a school for geniuses. They lived in New York City. Uh, but then after, it was actually a few years after the Depression that his real estate investments, his father's real estate investments went bad, and he lost his grocery store, and he said, I have no more money, so you are going to have to make your own way. If you guys want to go to college, you have to pay for it yourself. And so Arthur was kind of like a born entrepreneur. His parents always told him and his brothers that they should be doctors, but he also liked making money. He worked several jobs. He went to the school for geniuses. He played instruments. He played sports. He was on the yearbook team. And he also, like, delivered newspapers, delivered flowers, like, worked several jobs right until he went to college. And then he passed those jobs on to his brothers and then got new jobs in college and made so much money that he paid for his college and he was sending money home to his parents. Um, and, you know, fast forward, all the boys have become doctors. And they start this drug company. And their first big, their big drug is Valium. Like, they made and sold Valium, which is, you know, everybody has heard of it. Everybody has probably taken it at some point. You know, they use it in hospitals. And for many, 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 many years, you know, the family grew and they had children and the family, other family members became part of the company. And they amassed this huge fortune. And for much of the 20th century, the Sacklers were known as philanthropists. They had their name on everything, museums and buildings and parks and just everything. But then in the mid-1990s, the, their company introduced a new drug. It was OxyContin, which was supposedly this amazing painkiller that was going to revolutionize pain. It was going to help everybody, you know, especially people with chronic pain, people with, with cancer, and... And it did. Like, there's no denying that this drug doesn't help people. You know, Patrick Radenkeefe talked about, like, how many people he spoke to who said, you know, this drug helps me. But what the Sacklers did, what their company did, was downplay how addictive it was while really ramping up the push to doctors, to pharmacies. Just They just talked about, like, how great this was. Uh, and, and didn't address the other issues with it. And within a matter of years, it was a very short amount of time, there were hundreds of thousands of Americans addicted to this painkiller. Uh, and doctors were prescribing it like aspirin, and people were breaking into pharmacies left and right to steal it. And it, it just kept going on and on and on. And, and it was only about a dozen years ago 
that the Sacklers were first made to answer for the sale and distribution of this, where they had to like say, okay, maybe we'll scale back, you know, our push of this drug, but never like admitting to anything, never taking any responsibility for it. Whereas most information shows that if they hadn't hadn't marketed it this way, if they hadn't pushed it this way, it wouldn't have been such a problem. You know, so many Americans have died. They say over 450,000 Americans have died uh, from opioid-related overdoses since this drug came out. And, and even now, the Sacklers don't claim any responsibility. Patrick Radenkeefe was talking on his event saying he thought he would find, like, that one member of the family who was like, yes, this was bad and we shouldn't have done this. He couldn't find a single person because they're, they're just taking the money and they're keeping their mouths shut. And they can afford, like most giant corporations, to just hide behind lawyers indefinitely. You know, like three years ago, the, the company was the subject of over 2,500 lawsuits at that time that were filed by individuals, by cities, by states, by companies for their part in the epidemic and in deaths and in the way that they handled this drug. And the woman who runs the company, still is proud of it. She accepts no responsibility. And she thinks that, you know, they're doing a great job. She even brags about how she thinks that the OxyContin was her idea. Like, there's like this disconnect between her and like what is actually going on. And it's a really interesting book about like how much accountability do these people have? And the answer is pretty much a lot, like most of it, you know. And Patrick Radden Keefe, was talking about how the company sent him letter after letter and sent his publisher letter after letter saying, like, you know, don't write this book, don't write this book. You know, as recently as, like, 10 days before this book was was printed, or not printed but released, they were still sending him letters saying, like, you're going to be in a lot of trouble if you do this. And they spied on him. He knew that somebody was following him. He sent the company a list of questions, including, like, did you have somebody follow me on like certain days and all this stuff? And they sent him back the answers to these questions. Like five months later, I think he said, but they pretty much answered all of them except for the one about was he being spied on, which is kind of like a, we're not not spying on you. Like they just didn't even address it. But it's so fascinating because it's the story of these men achieving the American dream, you know, like work hard and, and make a fortune and take care of your family. But then it, a hundred years later, it turned into like the American nightmare. Uh, and Patrick Radden Keefe is such an incredible, such an incredible journalist. He wrote "Say Nothing" about the IRA and the troubles uh, last year, or maybe it was the year before, which is an incredible book. And this is another incredible book. I highly recommend reading this. Content warning, of course, for you know drug use, drug addiction, you know, and deaths. It is called Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty by Patrick Radden Keefe. Wow, that sounds intense. <laughs> it's so amazing. Well, and, and my day job is in fundraising, so I actually know a lot about the Sacklers as philanthropists. And um, the fallout to universities and museums and nonprofits and stuff, because it's like, 
nonprofits and universities take this money from billionaires and there's no ethical way of being a billionaire, et cetera, et cetera. But then like the having to go back in time and retcon the names on buildings and stuff like that. And like it also happens when you find out like this was named after one of our founders. And then it's like, oh, your founder was a eugenicist. And so like you need to rename all these buildings on campus. And it's just it's a mess in so many ways. Like be like, yes, like also over 450,000 people have died because of it. And yeah, it's just. Yeah. I mean, it was it was amazing to me how little I knew about a drug that affected my life so much. In the early 2000s, my first husband became addicted to OxyContin. And that was what I was dealing with. But I didn't know anything about the medication. I didn't know anything about the family. I still had never heard of the Sackler family until I learned the title of this book. And then last night I was watching Rutherford Falls which is this new show on Peacock, and they were talking about building something, and and this character says, who are we, the Sackler family? And I was like, (gasps) I had never heard of them before, you know? It's just so weird, like, what you don't know about Mm -hmm. everything going on around you. But his writing is amazing, and I'm so glad that he feels well and, and he was able to do the event because I learned so much more than I even did reading the book. But I'm gonna stop talking about it now. Okay, for my last book, it's another book that I mentioned at the end of 2020 that I was super excited about. I've been waiting for months to tell you all about this book. It is Victories Greater Than Death by Charlie Jane Anders. The book actually came out earlier this month, maybe a couple weeks ago, and I am so stoked that I get to tell you all about it. This is an epic young adult best friend space adventure. If you like the She-Ra and the Princesses of Power reboot, which I personally am obsessed with, then Victories Greater Than Death might be for you. Our teen protagonist, Tina, is actually a reincarnation of a phenomenal, brave, beloved alien. Tina is on Earth, disguised as an Earthling. When the story begins, Tina is waiting for the rescue beacon inside of her to light up. She knows that she is not an Earthling, and she knows that there are great plans for her. But first, the beacon needs to light up. And it should be any day now. Once the beacon lights up, there are two things she is expecting to happen. First is that the intergalactic space military crew that she belonged to will come searching for her. Then the plan is that they will bring her back to the spaceship and unlock her memories as the starship captain that she is supposed to be a reincarnation of. But the other thing that happens when she lights up is that the murderous, terrifying aliens, the one who killed her in the first place, will also see the beacon light up and immediately try to find her to murder her all over again. Tina has shared this information with her best friend, Rachel, and they've been waiting for this moment together for years. And Rachel is with Tina when Tina's beacon lights up. And as you can expect, all heck breaks loose. One of the things I often find myself disappointed with in sci-fi is that some authors still seem really stuck within earthling constructs like binary gender or ways of relating to other beings. Anders does what I have hoped for forever, and the non-earthlings are diverse and wonderful. Everyone introduces themselves with their pronouns, and not always just the typical pronouns we use here on Earth, and 
I feel like it is so so much broader thinking for sci-fi than I am used to seeing. There is also a diverse range of characters who I frequently found myself rooting for. It's queer and exciting and so much fun. I legitimately had a great time reading this book. Warning, it does end with a clear opening to a next book. Not quite a cliffhanger, but it's clear that there's there's more to come. It's Victories Greater Than Death by Charlie Jane Anders. I loved this book. There were two things particularly that I loved about it. One, there is a line about a pork bun that made me snort water out my nose. <laughs> that just caught me so unaware, and it just, I loved it. It's such a great line. Yeah. And also, I loved, like, in so many books, it's like the kid is in middle school, or they're in high school, and, like, suddenly they discover that you know, they have these superpowers, you know, like, they're just going about their regular life, and it's like, surprise, you're actually the only person who can defeat the evil jelly emperor of the donut realm, you know, like, they, but in this, it's like, Tina knows from the beginning, she's like, I'm an alien, and this thing is gonna happen someday, you know, I liked that, it wasn't just like, surprise, here you go, start running, you know, like, I liked it. I mean, it works, it's great both ways, but I, I particularly enjoyed that for this book. So those are our new books. What are you going to read next? I am reading so many things. So I'm about most of the way through I Hope We Choose Love, A Trans Girl's Notes from the End of the World by Kai Chang Tom. And my wife has begun, uh, gotten back to reading me bedtime stories. So we're working our way through Rejected Princesses by Jason Porath. But I'm putting everything down because I just got a copy of Squad by Maggie Takuda Hall and Lisa Sturl, which comes out in October. But it's a graphic novel that I have been looking forward to. So everything's getting pushed aside for that. That's exciting. I am going to read Monster in the Middle by Tiffany Yannick, who wrote Love and Land and Drowning, which was a favorite here at Book Riot. In 2014, I can't believe it's been that long, Um, but I'm so excited for a new novel. And I'm also reading The History of Bones, a memoir by John Lurie, because I love Down by Law, which is a Jim Jarmusch film with Tom Waits and Roberto Bonini that I just love because Tom Waits is my favorite human. Um, And John Lurie was on Oz, and he was in The Lounge Lizards, and he does painting with John now on HBO, and I just think it's going to be really interesting, so... I'm excited for that. Those both come out in late fall. Um, That is it for us today. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. You can drop us a line at allthebooks at bookriot.com. You can find us online. Patricia hangs out on Twitter and Instagram at The Info File, which is T-H-E-I-N-F-O-P-H-I-L-E. I mostly hang out on Instagram at Franzen Comes Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And big, big, big virtual hugs to everyone who has done that already. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And for more recs or general bookishness, check out bookriot.com. And don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen, or just search Book Riot on your podcast player of choice. And in the meantime, happy, happy reading! reading.